right, go ahead and take your seat and uh, take your Bibles and get them open to Romans chapter 5. And uh, we're going to do uh, this week and next week to finish chapter 5, and then we're going to set this series aside for Christmas and do a little something different uh, through December. And then uh, back in January, we'll get back into uh, the latter part of our study in Romans 7, uh, sorry, 6, 7, and 8. We'll finish it up uh, in the new year with eight messages, um, taking us to the end of chapter 8. All right, you ready? Ready for this? All right, let me uh, start with a question, simple answer, agree or disagree, okay? Agree or disagree. The world we live in makes it super hard to be at peace. You agree with that? The world we live in makes it very hard for us to live um, at peace. And uh, the thing that we need to hear uh, from this passage today more than anything else is that God wants you to be at peace. In fact, God has made a way for every single person to live at peace in this world. And uh, let's get right after it. Let's uh, right in the intro. Let's go right to a chart. Ready for this? Ready for a chart? How many people love charts? <laughs> love a good chart. When we think about peace, what peace is, peace is often defined in terms of the negative, what it isn't, but it's just as much what it is as much as it is what it isn't. And so peace is the absence of conflict, strife, and upset and distress in our lives. We would all agree, I'm at peace when I don't have these things happening in my life. But peace is also the presence of blessing, abundance, calm, and well-being. In fact, if we take all of this together and say this is our definition of peace, it boils down to something like this. Peace is wholeness in the midst of any and all circumstances. And that definition is going to serve us really well as we get into the text and we start to see exactly what God is talking about as Paul explains all of this to us. God wants this kind of peace, the absence of and the presence of, God wants that for every person in this room, and He's made a way for you to have it. So we're going to continue today in our study of Romans 1 to 8. We're looking at the power of the gospel in this series. We're going to look today at the peace that comes from being saved, being in a relationship uh, with our God. So when you have Jesus, you have peace, and whatever else is happening around you, that peace can never be taken away from you. And again, that's something we should all desire. So Romans chapter 5, first 11 verses, let me read this, and then we'll go after it. The Apostle Paul writes this, Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, 
We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All right, here's what we're going to go after. It's in your notes. Uh, The peace that comes with being justified by God means that I have access to His grace. I have access to His grace. Now, before we get to this first point about grace, if we could just park the idea of grace for a moment, and let's go back to this overarching theme of peace, and let's lock down exactly what we're talking about with respect to peace. He starts in verse 1. He uses the word therefore. Everyone understands the chapter and verse divisions were not there in the, in the, when the, the authors wrote these things. Those were added 1,500 years later. And so this is Paul. He's just writing a letter. He's going from one paragraph to another. He puts the word therefore in here because this ties into everything he's just said. In fact, he says this, therefore, and you should underline this, this phrase, since we have been justified by faith, So this is the start of what we call chapter 5, but he's saying, in light of everything that's just come in the first four chapters, now i got some things to tell you about the benefits of being justified. And so this, this phrase, it's so important, since we've been justified by faith, that's really a summary statement of the first four chapters of Romans that we've already looked at. The result of justification is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, J.C. Ryle, he gave an excellent kind of summary of what we've looked at so far. Ryle said this, without justification, it is impossible to have real peace. Conscience forbids it. Sin is a mountain between a man and God and must be taken away. The sense of guilt lies heavy on the heart and must be removed. Unpardoned sin will murder peace. The true Christian knows all this well. His peace arises from a consciousness of his sins being forgiven and his guilt being put away. He has peace with God because he's justified. Ryle makes it very clear for us what Romans 1 to 4 was about and, and, the, and the edge of what we're standing on now. Because we're justified, this peace is available to us. And we looked at In those first, uh, especially Romans 1, 2, and 3, we saw over and over again how we're sinners. Multiple messages in a row that just locked down. It seemed like every week you were coming to church, you were hearing another message. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Hey, this week we found out I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Next week we're looking at I'm a sinner. We got that in the first three chapters, and, and now we get to these benefits that are starting to roll out to us. And so our salvation, confessing our sin, being saved and justified by Jesus Christ brings peace. And when we think of peace, we have to think about both the external and internal benefits or aspects to this peace that we have. So let me give you both of these. Externally, we have been cleared of all charges by the blood of Jesus Christ, that the Father no longer counts our sin against us. And so externally, we have been declared to be righteous or just, and we have been reconciled to God. And we're going to look at that in more depth right at the end of the message in verses 10 and 11. So that's the external peace. We're we're no longer in conflict with God Himself. But then there's also an internal aspect to this in the sense that um, internally, what I feel with respect to 
uh, myself, with respect to my relationship to other people, I feel at peace, with respect to how I see the world, I'm at peace with the world, and I'm at peace with my circumstances. Internally, I have a peace no matter what's going on around me. And in fact, let me unpack this whole idea of being at peace with myself, because I think this is an area where a lot of people struggle. And I've heard this phrase a lot, you've probably heard it too, that um, I just need to, I just need to get to the place where I forgive myself. Heard that before? Um, I just need to forgive myself. And the reality is that's not um, actually that biblical to say that. Um, the forgiveness that you need is from God. That's the forgiveness you need to, to seek. What you're really saying and I don't want to be too hard on anybody, but what you're really saying when you say, I, I need to forgive myself, is I need to be at peace with myself. I need to understand what God's already done for me in that external sense, and I've been declared righteous, and now I need to take the benefits of that reconciliation with God, and I need to apply that to every aspect of my life. That peace of God needs to inform how I see myself, and how I see others, and how I see the world, and how I see my circumstances. I need to be at peace with all of that, and I can be at peace with all of that because I've been reconciled to God. I've settled the most pressing issue, and everything else, everything else is secondary to that and falls into place because I see it all now, at least I should be growing in this, I see it all as God sees it. That's the aspiration. I see all of those things the way God sees them. But I know some of you are sitting there right now and you're going, oh, oh, but that's not real life, Todd. Real life is I often feel conflict with myself. Real life is I have conflict with other people. Real life is I struggle with my circumstances and I'm not particularly at peace with the world. That's more real life. Because I know that when I say that, you just reconcile to God and everything else is going to fall into place. And that sounds so easy. But it's not that easy, is it? It's not as easy as just saying that. I, too, have struggled with anxiety. I would say I struggle with anxiety. I, too, have had relationships. I have relationships right now that have not resolved themselves the way that I wish they would have resolved despite effort, just can't get to a good place. I, too, struggle with circumstances. I'm not unlike you. I wish everything were smooth all the time. All in favor. I wish everything were smooth all the time. And when things are not smooth, I can get upset about it. I don't particularly like it. I talk to God about it in ways that show a faithlessness. I want my life to be happy. And happy for me means everything going Todd's way. But is that the reality? Not for me and not for you. Well, now that I've confessed many of my sins to you, the way that I deal with that when I'm aligned with God the way that I deal with that, because the way I deal with it, to be honest with you, a lot of the time is not the way I should be dealing with it. But when, I, when I'm remembering what God has said to me, I remind myself of this truth. It's from Psalm 118, verse 6. 
The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What will man do to me? What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. I'm at peace with him. He's on my side. I'm on his side. What can man do to me? What can circumstances do to me? What can the world do to me? What can I do to myself? And the answer is nothing. Because the Lord is on my side. I have peace with him. And so when I'm in those moments when I'm not quite getting it right, I just go back to the truth. I remind myself of the truth. I bring myself back to the center. I have Jesus. And so I can be at peace. And the peace that comes with being justified means that I have, now we can get back to the grace part, means that I have, verse 2, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, now, now talk about stacking up all the benefits of believing. This verse is packed with all the power words. You know what I'm saying? You take a look there and you just see they're all there. Faith, grace, joy. He talks about rejoicing. The word joy is there. Hope, glory. It's all there for the receiving. These are all the benefits that are going to flow when you receive the gospel and you have the peace of God. We exercise faith. You just track with the words here. We exercise faith. We receive grace, the undeserved and under in favor of God. That results in joy in my life. That results in hope in my life. And that results when all of that's playing out, then God is glorified and the glory of God begins to manifest itself in my own life. So grace then, the exercise of faith brings me to grace and unleashes this joy and this hope and this glory in my life. So grace becomes this hinge point between the faith that I exercise, the justification that comes as a result of that, and then the abundance that God plans to pour out in your life in this joy, this hope, and this glory. In fact, we could call this the peace dividend. And when, when, when warring factions, when countries come to terms, what happens after the war is that there is a peace dividend that countries enjoy. If you know history, you know that in the Roman Empire, at the time when Paul was writing, in the Roman Empire throughout the Mediterranean world, there's a lot of things we might think about the Roman Empire and how ruthless it was. But one of the things it brought to the world at the time was the Pax Romana, that's Latin, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And throughout the Mediterranean world, there was a peace and a prosperity that came as a result of the ceasing of wars. And when we end the war with God, When we reconcile with Him, God pours out a peace dividend in our life. By faith, through grace, it brings hope, it brings um, glory to our lives, and it brings unending joy. Well, the peace of God, the peace that comes with being justified by God means that I have access to His grace. We just looked at that. And then secondly, notice this, um, I have His perspective on suffering. I have his perspective on suffering. Uh, often, um, and I'm speaking, I think it's, it's important to say that I'm speaking to believers here, as Paul was. He was writing a letter to the believers in the church of Rome. So I'm speaking to believers here. If you're an unbeliever, you haven't yet trusted Christ, you're welcome to listen in. I hope that you trust him as your Savior. But the principles I'm laying out here are for believers. He says, um, often we fail to enjoy the peace of God 
simply because we fail to see things as God sees them. We don't have the peace of God because we're not seeing things the way God is seeing them. And Paul knows that the believers in Rome are no different than any other people, any other believers, no different than you and I. When he writes to these believers in Rome, please understand, he's writing to us and into our situation. Peace, it often eludes us despite the fact that we know Jesus. Again, I'm talking to believers. You've professed faith in Him. Your sins have been forgiven. You know you're headed to heaven. You've got all of that. And yet, there are several of us in this room, many of us in this room, who would say, but you know what? I just, I'm just, I feel like I'm not at peace. And the struggle there may simply be because you have a faulty view of suffering. And we need to get God's view on suffering. In fact, He introduces here... um, in a way that lets us believe that this is the primary means by which we fail to enjoy the peace of God. We worry, we're anxious, we're fearful because we don't understand God's way of working through personal suffering. We're willing to accept the teaching of God on suffering as long as someone else is enjoying the suffering. I'm not wrong. But as soon as it becomes personal, this is a problem for us. But he says this, again, back to verse 2 for just a second. He says, rejoice, and essentially rejoice in hope and glory. So rejoice in the hope. Hope is always something that is going to be realized for us. It's not just some uh, faint hope. It's not something we hope will happen or we think will happen. It's going to happen. That's where our hope is. And then the glory of God shining down. So we can rejoice in those things. It's great to rejoice in hope, and it's great to rejoice in the glory of God shining. In other words, it's great to rejoice, and it's easy to rejoice in all the good things that happen to us. But then verse 3 hits us like a ton of bricks. Verse 3, we are actually to rejoice in our sufferings. I mean, just from a human standpoint, that doesn't click. In fact, we try to get out from our sufferings. We do everything we can to avoid sufferings. There are 7,000 pharmacies in the city of Barrie. I think that number is slightly inflated, but only slightly. We have that many pharmacies because we work very hard to alleviate our suffering. If the pharmacy doesn't help us, how many beer stores and liquor stores do we have in town? Right? We're always trying to alleviate our suffering. We're not rejoicing in our sufferings. Yet that's what God's calling us to do. We're going to have His perspective. That's why our our definition... Okay, the definition we laid out at the beginning was this, peace is wholeness in the face of any and all circumstances. Any and all. The good things that happened to us, easy to have peace then, a little harder when things are not going our way. We're to have it in abundance, peace in abundance, and also in suffering, we're to be joyful at peace in any circumstances. How? How do we get there? Because this sounds hard. What's the end game for God? How can I get to the place where I go, you know, it's okay that I'm going through this because I know God has a plan for all of us. I can be at peace because I understand here's God's plan. 
Suffering produces endurance. Verse four, that's the end of verse 3. I can endure. I can endure. I can persevere because I've persevered before. I can endure because, you know what, I, I watched how someone else went through the same thing and they endured. I can endure because I know people are praying for me. I can endure. Those are all good reasons. I can endure because, here's the best one, because Jesus endured. So I, I can endure. I, I, suffering produces endurance in me, verse 4, and then endurance produces character, and character produces hope, verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame. The NIV says it doesn't disappoint us. In other words, it's really a hope that's going to be fulfilled. It's a hope that will happen. ESV says it doesn't put us to shame. And the shame would be that in the midst of these trials, all of a sudden we're not looking very much like Christians. We say we believe in Jesus, but then we're fighting Jesus the entire time over this suffering that's happening to us. We say we believe. We act like we don't. We say we're all about eternity. And what we're really doing is just trying to make our life here super comfortable. But all our value on the here and now. We say we trust God, but then we take matters into our own hands. We say we identify with the sufferings of Jesus, but all we want is comfort. And so, we have to get to this place where we appreciate what God is doing through the sufferings. We rejoice in them, in fact. And so, I thought I would just show us this flow chart so that we understand these verses. All the project manager geeks in the room are going to love this. All right, little flow chart, little sideways flow chart. The starting point is this, this premise. In fact, the premise we read in verse 5, uh, we rejoice in our sufferings. The latter part says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we, we rejoice in our sufferings. That's the premise. And then we have a decision to make. The suffering's coming upon us. Everybody's going to face it. You can either accept it or reject it. Now, let's, let's work on the bottom line first. If we reject it, where does that take us? Well, by rejecting it, we then have this spirit of resistance inside of us for what God is doing. We just resist Him. We resist His will. We're basically saying, God, what you chose for me is wrong. Can everybody see how that's a problem? Well, that's not going to lead to a good place. In fact, when we reject Him and we resist His will, that leads to ungodliness. What then begins to come out, because we've resisted Him, what begins to come out is ungodly behavior. We're impatient. We're angry. We're frustrated by God. And that begins a downward spiral of all of this effect of sin in our lives. We're no longer looking like godly Christians. We're looking like ungodly unbelievers. That ungodliness then leads us to this place of incredible despair. There is no hope at the end of this path. But we wallow in our sufferings. We whine to God, and we don't look at all like a believer. And the end point of that is not a good one. But instead, if we accept the premise that we should rejoice in our sufferings because God's working in our lives, if we accept that, then endurance comes in. And the word endurance actually means that I'm going to remain under the thing that God is doing. I'm going to endure in the midst of it. And that's going to lead to godly character. Now, all of a sudden, I'm developing patience in my life. 
I'm, 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 I'm being very measured. There's self-control being developed in my life because God's doing this deep work in the midst of a time of difficulty and suffering. And we say to God at this point, God, I just think you could develop character in my life in a whole different way. We have these conversations with Him. God, if you would take the suffering away, I could develop really good godly character if what you decided to do, this is our plan, if what you decided to do was just pour out good things in my life, just give me blessing, just pour out abundance, just give me everything I want, just bless my path, I just want everything in my life to go smoothly. God, if you would only answer that prayer, I would then praise you to everyone and I would give you the credit for everything that I have in my life. Just make my life easy. Now listen, any of you who are parents know that that plan does not work with your kids. Give your kids absolutely everything they want, and they do not turn out to be great kids. They turn out to be spoiled brats and awful adults. And God's the best parent of all, isn't He? He already knows. If He gives us everything we want, that does not lead to godly character. That leads to spoiled brat Christians. No one wants that. We accept the premise of suffering, we endure, we develop character, and that leads to the hope that does not disappoint, a hope that will come about in our lives. That's the right end point for God's people. So accept God's program, accept suffering as a tool in God's toolbox to make us more like Him and to draw us into a closer relationship with Him. Now, before we leave this point, about suffering, how can we miss, as, as we even think about our own suffering, how can we miss that suffering is at the very crux of the redemptive plan that God has for this world? Suffering is at the very center of it. Jesus was made to suffer for our sake, suffering the indignity of becoming human. He suffered the insufferable unbelief of His own people. He suffered the ignorance of being ridiculed and rejected. He suffered the injustice of false accusations. He suffered the ignoble acts of cruelty brought upon Him. He suffered the immoral and illegal execution on the cross. Jesus knows all about suffering. God ordained that He should suffer on our behalf. In fact, God has been more than long-suffering in everything that He's done on our behalf. And he isn't asking us to do anything that He hasn't already done. Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him, listen to this, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I must have His perspective on suffering. Amen? Amen? Still with me? You want more? I have more. Do you want more? Let's finish it up. A couple more to go here. I also know that I have His love. So, Paul wants us to think again about what God has done for us, so he takes us to verse 6. While we were still uh, weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When you see weak there, don't think frail, think immoral. Okay? He parallels the word weak with the word ungodly at the end of the verse. And so, we're really talking about ungodliness or sinfulness or moral weakness. For while we were still weak or sinners, at the right time Christ died for the un- ungodly. Now, that's, that's love. 
That's, that's love. Our sin had severed the relationship with God, created all the chaos that we see in the world. And God put it back together. He says this in verse 7, for one, just to illustrate the, the depth of God's sacrifice for us and His love, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Some people, some people would die for a righteous person. Some people would put their life on the line for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. And I, and I immediately, as soon as I read that, I immediately thought of first responders who are putting themselves out there every single day. I thought about our military and how they'll put themselves in harm's way for the sake of others. And in fact, I was thinking about it. I'm trying to lock down when are people actually willing to give their lives for someone else. And I'm, I'm watching this series right now called Medal of Valor. It's about uh, U.S. military um, in Canada, we have the Victoria Cross. It's for the highest gallantry, bravery, um, going above and beyond the call of duty. All these stories are so remarkable, and this isn't something I would know myself. But in, in the episode I watched yesterday, the point was made this, that a soldier in battle is, is not thinking about the ideology that he's fighting for. You know, we're, it's not we're trying to defeat this evil. It's not that. It's, it's not even what the commanders have said. It's not what the generals and the colonels have given to them. It's not that. The soldier who's willing to give his life is willing to give his life for the soldier who is right beside him. It's for those he's, sold, he's, he's shoulder to shoulder with. That's the moment that a man or a woman in combat is willing to say, I'm, I'm willing to give my life for that. I'm willing to give my life for you. It's that personal contact. It's that, you know, that, that band of brothers, the bond that is forged in the midst of the intensity of battle. That's when love demonstrates itself in a way that someone is willing to give their life for that. And most people will not sacrifice themselves even for someone who we might perceive is a good person or deserves it. But in contrast to that verse 8, notice... God shows His love for us in that while we're still sinners, we're not the good person that Paul is setting up in his little hypothetical. We're not that good person. We're not the righteous person. We're the sinners. And in the midst of that, God was willing to send His Son to die for us. We don't deserve this. In fact, as sinners, we're going to find out in verse 10, we find out we're actually enemies of God. Who dies for their enemies? You don't die for your enemies. One thing, one thing only overcomes this insurmountable obstacle of us being the enemies of God, and it is the love of God. God shows His love. And we have such a hard time understanding this word love. Because for us, it's all wrapped up in feelings. It's all about you know, how our stomach turns. Oh, I just feel so great when I'm around her. It's all about sentiment. Even years into a marriage, we can say something as, as silly as that, I've, I've just fallen out of love. I just don't feel the same way about him or her anymore. And in saying something like that, we've forgotten or not known what the Scriptures actually show us about what love actually is. It has nothing to do with feelings. It's entirely action. Love is an action, not a feeling. It is 
a declaration that I'm putting you before me. That's what love is. Love is intentionally choosing your well-being over mine. If I put your well-being over mine, it doesn't matter what I say to you. I don't need to say it. I don't need to send you a card on Valentine's Day. I don't need to have a mushy feeling inside of myself. If I put your well-being before mine, I love you. That's what God's demonstrating to us. God shows the intentionality of His actions toward us. God puts our well-being above His own and sent His Son, Christ, to die for us. No doubt as Paul's writing this, he's thinking about that one-on-one conversation that Jesus had with a a religious leader in John chapter 3. You remember his name, Nicodemus. And when I read this story, I always picture like a really nice man. I don't know about, I don't know why, but Nicodemus, I always think he's like a nice guy. He wasn't a believer yet. He meets with Jesus privately, so he's a little fearful. But he comes to Jesus. He spent his whole life being a religious leader, learning everything about the Torah, the Hebrew Scriptures, and he's, he's meeting with Jesus and asking these questions. But, but in this moment, what Jesus says to him is the, these great words that we all know, for God so loved the world. God intentionally moved toward a world that hated him and gave his only son. This man, Nicodemus, even though I think of him as a really nice guy, he's an enemy of God because he didn't believe. And Jesus reaches out towards his enemy with a declaration of his love and a pledge to make a change. So Paul goes on, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. You can just note beside that, Romans 3.25, we looked at propitiation, and that's what he's mentioning again here. It's an ongoing tragedy, though, when we think about love and how we miss this. We can not only miss on the definition, but then we miss on the source of love. And uh, I grew up in a home where, um, not all the time, but sometimes my mother would inflict country music on me on Saturday mornings. But one of those console stereo things with the lid that would lift up and the LPs would go down. She'd stack up three or four of them on the turntable. they just keep falling for hours, you know, and playing country song after country song. And um, I just remember this one lyric, and I don't even remember the artist, uh, but I remember this one lyric, and it's... Um, Looking for love in all the wrong places. Anybody know that song? Shame on you. (laughs) Identify all the country music people in the room. Cast you out, anyways. Looking for love in all the wrong places. But the reality is, if you don't first accept the love of God, that's exactly what you're going to do. You're going to look for love in all the wrong places. If you don't understand the depth of what God has for you, you're going to go out in the world and try to find it. You're looking for the wrong thing, and you're looking in the wrong places. You're not going to find love by having sex. You're not going to find love by swiping right. You're not going to find love by being married, by having kids, by joining a club, by being in a church. You're not going to find love by being popular, by getting likes on Facebook or views on Instagram and TikTok. The peace that comes with being justified by God means that I know that I have His love and I'm not going to go looking for it anywhere else. 
I have His love. And so when, when, not if, when I face rejection, when I face conflict, when I face disappointment, when I face failed relationships, when I face loneliness, when I face all of it, any and all circumstances, everything that this world dishes out to me, I still know that I am loved by God. The love of God silences everything and gives me peace with Him. And I hope you believe that. And I hope you stop looking for it in the wrong places and looking for the wrong kind of love. Well, here's a final one. You know, um, this last thing that brings me peace is um, knowing that I am no longer His enemy. We already touched on this, and I we don't think about unbelievers in these terms. We don't think about those who don't believe in Jesus as being the enemies of God, but in fact they are. We, we don't think of ourselves before we were saved as being enemies of God. Um, I was 15 when I was saved, and I think I was essentially a good kid. My mother's not in this service to say otherwise. Uh, but I think I was a pretty good kid. In fact, I believed in God. I would go to church from time to time. I, I, um, I had a sense of God. I was pretty moral. I was raised in a good home. But before age 15, when I gave my life to Christ, was I an enemy of God? The word enemy, it's so, it's so sinister. It, it kind of has like evil right built into the word. So we start to think about all the people in our lives who, who are unbelievers. We think about people that, you know, in our workplace, we think about our neighbors. I live on a great street. We have great neighbors. I'm out there often in the circle talking to different neighbors about what's going on in their lives, what's happening in our neighborhood. They're enemies of God. Your loved ones, your extended family don't know Jesus. Are they enemies of God? I wanted to really understand this. I looked at Cambridge Dictionary just to get a general understanding of the word enemy. is a person who hates or opposes another person and tries to harm them or stop them from doing something. Now, that does not in our normal understanding of the word apply to us before we believed. But if we start to tease it out a bit and we start to think about who we really are as unbelievers... The enemies of God would be anyone who did not love Him and who opposed His way and who undermined His gospel by rejecting it. That is an enemy of God. And we could even break it down if it's more comfortable for us. And after all, that's why I'm here, is just to make you feel comfortable. <laughs> we could talk about active enemies of God or passive enemies of God. Active enemies are those who openly take God on, atheists, secularists, naturalists, uh, those from other uh, religions who would oppose Christianity. Those are the active enemies of God. We could say that. But then the passive enemies of God who quietly reject Him. Those who have this like ambivalence towards Jesus and toward the offer of salvation in the gospel. And when you start to look at it that way, the passive enemies of God, you just realize we're surrounded by people who fall into this category. But listen, both, whether active or passive, are aligned with evil, even if we don't like to call it that. For his part, Paul didn't have any trouble calling it that. That's what he 
says in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, and he's talking about himself, he's talking about the, the, the Jews who are now Christians and the Gentiles who are now Christians, he's talking to them in the church in Rome, and he's saying to them, while we were, if while we were enemies, before we believed, before we were saved, we were reconciled, you know, brought into a peace relationship with God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Notice in verse 10, he talks about the death and life of Jesus. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 25, we had that little creedal statement that Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and was raised for our justification. The whole idea of the cross and the empty tomb, the one-two punch of the gospel, you can't You can't not have both of those together, and he has that again in verse 10. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It is this reconciliation that brings us peace in our relationship with God, and it produces this peace dividend in our lives. The question that remains is why would we continue to fight God about these things? Why would we continue to contend with Him over all these things that we've heard in the book of Romans to this point? If reconciliation is available to us and and the peace that comes with it, why would we continue to look at the creation, for example, and not see the Creator? Why would we continue in our sin thinking that our immorality will be satisfying in some way? Why would we continue to think that being moral or being religious is enough to save us? If I could take you back to verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you been justified by faith? Do you have peace with God? You should and you can if you don't. Call on Him now. And if you're already a believer, you should be basking in that peace dividend. And if you're not basking in the peace dividend, then there's something you need to agree with God about and you need to make a turn in order to fully appreciate and enjoy the peace of God in your life. I want that for you. I want it for me. Let's pray. Father, as we have, um, as we have prayed, I believe at the end of all of these messages, God, if there's anyone in the room or on the live stream or on demand right now who's watching who does not yet have a relationship with you, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be convincing them of the truths that we've been talking about. God, this world offers nothing. And I pray that those who do not yet have Jesus would see that and would find peace today. The peace that comes through being justified by faith, calling out to Jesus. Father, I have a great concern for those of us in the room who are believers and and yet God are struggling to have peace and to allow it to play out in our lives. And life is hard and this year has compounded it for so many. But God, we of all people should be thriving in the midst of this pandemic. We should be thriving in the midst 
of the economic uncertainty. God, we, of all people, should be, because we have the Holy Spirit and we're bound together in a mystical way, God, we should be thriving even in the midst of isolation. We have something no one else has. We have Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the peace of God. So God, help us to live that out. And where we're not, help us to repent, to own that, confess it, and to make a turn. God, these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.